You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon reading is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed us, and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is God's word. Well, good morning once again. As the sermon text was read, and hopefully you know, we're continuing through our study in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you, we will have text on the screen, but I encourage you to turn to chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seat backs in front of you, but also we have these uh, wonderful little, I don't even know what you call them now, like uh, the scripture notebooks, there you go, that will uh, enable you to take notes, plenty of notes beside that. encourage you to take those home. They're a gift from us to you so that you have the opportunity to study more deeply and respond to God's word in ways that are reflective uh, and encouraging to your heart. Uh, We're going to continue in Colossians, and um, today, as we read in chapter 2, starting in verse 4, we're going to be talking about victory in Jesus. And I didn't, I intentionally did not ask, uh, oh, that that died, we had a crash. Do we have someone technically that can help? with that. Um, there you go, Mikey, you got this. Um, um, I'm encouraged by your willingness to step in and not on my, well, okay, this is a thing. There we go. Yeah, it's back up. Can you see if it's recording? It probably does not. Let me see what happened to, we're all here. Guys, this is the beauty of just this t- close-knit kind of opportunity we have to, to see things fall apart. People fill into different roles. They learn new skills. Um, okay. Uh, There's no better time than now to pray. Um, so as things, we'll hold things together. So would you join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we come before you again. incapable in ourselves to live in this world in a way that honors and glorifies you apart from your grace and your mercy and Lord the strength and power you promise to your people in Christ and Father as we look at Colossians 2 I ask Lord that you would encourage our hearts to know that is there is no power in this world that can stand against the working of Christ in us. God, build us up and make us look more like him. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In a recent study that was released by George Barna at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, it was a world 
American Worldview Inventory of 2022. They found some striking information out about the state of biblical worldview with American pastors. Now, this was a study done of about 1,000 pastors, so it's a sample size. These guys are better at research than I am. Barna, if you're not familiar, has been doing this for a hot minute. So it does tell us something. It's not the law, but it does give us some information and insight. And the thing that was interesting about this is that people have expectations of pastors and Christian churches and what they might believe about the Bible and about the world. But in this survey, in this sample size, of about a thousand pastors, they found out that just slightly more than a third, as defined by the series of questions they asked, slightly more than a third, 37%, have a biblical worldview. And that about 62% of them possess a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. The study, uh, the article written about this study goes on to say that much like other Americans, the pastors who do not have a biblical worldview are unlikely to fully embrace a competing worldview such as secular humanism, Marxism, or others. In fact, less than 1% of pastors embody a worldview other than biblical theism. Instead, their prevailing worldview is best described as syncretism, the blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. More than six out of 10 pastors have a predominantly syncretistic worldview. Now, the interesting thing about this study, and then when we read Colossians, is that the idea of what's happening within the church globally, within pastors specifically in this study, is that it's not new. Um, scripture would actually tell us there's nothing new under the sun. But in fact, the temptation that the Colossians are being led towards and that Paul's attempting to address is exactly this idea of syncretism, that they are tempted to follow after what's broadly and commonly known as the Colossian heresy. And next week, uh, we have the privilege of hearing from uh, Patrick, as I mentioned, I'm going to be out, and Patrick's going to bring us some more specifics about what's happening in the Colossian church. So I'm not going to dive too far deeply into that, but I will say that what seems to be apparent and what is also present based on the way Paul is talking, like if you think about this, Paul's writing a letter, a lot of the themes and words and things, selections he's making is applying or suggesting to apply, at least he's trying to connect in this beginning, a lot of indicatives to the problem that the Colossians are um, facing. Now, if you're not familiar with what an indicative is, like, you know, in my household, I'm like, hey, it's grammar time. Let's talk about it. It's a verb mood. I love grammar, by the way. Isn't that weird? I just love it. Uh, it's a verb mood uh, in which it's used to state a fact or opinion and to ask questions. For example, a verb that says, it is raining outside. I enjoy the rain. Are you getting wet? These are all indicative, meaning they're stating facts. They're stating opinions. They're just asking questions. And in the beginning, as common with Paul's letter, he's doing a lot of indicatives, meaning he's telling us specifically for him all the things that are true about who we are and who God is and what Christ did. And hopefully you've seen that. Hopefully you've seen that Paul is trying to lay a foundation for what is now a transition at this point into imperatives. Imperatives if you're not familiar, uh, is a mood used to express a command. It's a direction, okay? It's giving us, okay, these are all true about Christ. Now this is how you live. This is what it means in your life. This is why it applies. And very much so in this passage, there's a transition shift in which Paul is making where he is moving from mostly indicatives into the imperatives. In fact, it gets very specific in the latter parts of the text, in the latter parts of the letter, because Paul begins to specifically say how that applies in your life after he talks about the heresies that they're facing. And broadly speaking, what seems to be apparent within these, if you talk about what challenges they're facing, what seems to be apparent is that there's a suggestion that there's something lacking in Christ alone. I, we see that in this study about the pastors, that they have Christ, they have the gospel, but then they're adding something else onto it. They're, su they're supplementing. They're, they're taking Christ 
and he's not enough, so we got something else. And we see Paul, as last week um, when Micah was preaching, says that I am making up what is lacking in Christ. And hopefully you heard that Paul's not saying there is something lacking in Christ. In some respects, he's saying, I'm trying to bring you more Christ because what's lacking apparently for you is the understanding that he is all in all, right? So, so for the heresy that they're facing, and it's an interesting term. Have you, maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've used it. Maybe you've heard someone use it. Maybe it's not common parlay today. You're not walking around going heresy, heresy. But in this particular case, it's, it's really applicable when you consider it in the context of where we get that phrase or that word from. And it comes when Paul's talking to Titus and he tells them to have nothing to do with divisive people. In many respects, that divisiveness is dividing them from the head, which is Christ to undercut, which is the sufficiency and fullness of God in Christ. There's what's more to that, but I don't think we need to dive deeply into it. But what we can see is this idea, these people are trying to tempt the Colossians to believe that Christ is not enough, that there's somehow a greater spirituality to be achieved in addition to him. Great, you got Jesus. Also, let me tell you about these other things. There's angels. Let's talk about them. Oh, you... You're not, being, you're not starving yourself and being ascetic. Here's the way to achieve some more spirituality. These are things that show up here. Oh, you need to, for example, maybe you need to be circumcised like the Jewish people. GDI just show up all the time. There's something extra you need to add on. But in this transition, Paul here is fully aware, both that as he's put forward, that Jesus Christ is sufficient and enough but also there's plenty of things in this world they're gonna to try to tell you that's not true. To undercut that. Powers in this world that will begin to shake the foundations of your faith in Christ. In this passage right here, according to theologian Douglas Moo in his commentary, quote, is the heart of Colossians. See, what we have to understand as God's people and what Paul wants the Colossians to know is that even though, even though we have started to believe that Jesus is enough, we're going to face challenges to that belief day after day because there are enemies and powers at work in this world that want to undermine that. But even though we face that, that God has secured victory over all our enemies in Christ so that we can walk boldly after him. That, that God has, in Christ, vanquished all our foes, empowering us to pursue him with boldness and an unwavering faith. And he wants to show that in two sections here, starting verse in, in verses four through seven, where he first wants to confirm and affirm for us Christ's desire for his body. So let's look at that with him, with us. I'm sorry, you look at this with me. We'll do it together. We're all gonna be in the text. Christ's desire for his body, fullness of life in him. Colossians chapter two, starting in verse four. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Paul is making a, a factual statement, a declaration. Why have I told you all of these things previously? It's beautiful because when you read Paul's letter, you don't have to beat around the bush. He says, I'm telling you this so that no one will deceive you. I love this, with arguments that sound reasonable. And, and brothers and sisters, I want you to know, in this world, you will hear arguments that on the surface sound reasonable. It, it, would be, it would be foolish for us to believe that the enemy of God has been at work in this world for eternity, not eternity, but since the beginning, and has not learned a few tricks. We are, our life is but a vapor in comparison to their existence, and their brilliance far outshines ours. So never underestimate the deception that can occur when you are faced with an argument that undermines the fullness of Christ, because it can sound reasonable. Even people today that are alive only but for a small blip in the timeline of history can learn tips and tricks that sound reasonable. So Paul says, I'm telling you this thing about Christ because I don't want you to be deceived. Verse five, for I may be absent in the body, but I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Christ. 
Now, after Paul summarizes his primary objective here, he also affirms and he celebrates the faith that he's seen in the Colossians. Note that he is going back to these themes of body and spirit. He's talked about the physical body of Christ and how Christ in his physical body died to reconcile you. And now he is acknowledging that I'm off in prison. I might be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit. And in spirit, I'm rejoicing to see how well-ordered, also could say disciplined, you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. He's heard about the Colossian church's faith, and he is affirming and encouraging the things he's heard in them. And an overarching theme that starts to also reveal, which shows up later in the letter, is that the body of Christ is unified in the spirit. Like he's not there physically, but he feels a present reality with him because he is encouraged in his spirit to hear the way God is at work in them. And, it, and, and, and the spirit in him confirms that he is at work in them by what he hears. So, so this is really important because the theme shows up how in the body of Christ we are united in spirit and how we should be, later in Colossians says, united in love. Like, like there is something bigger about the way we're united that goes well beyond anything about our skin color, our nationality, our language barriers, the, the life we lead, the town we grew up in. All of those things that we allow to divide us mean nothing compared to the spirit that unites us. Like, like you and I should recognize that we have far more in common with a suffering Ukrainian or Palestinian Christian on the other side of the globe than your neighbor who denies and is hostile to the very gospel of Christ. Like, we, like there's a unity there that we both sorrow in their suffering and we pray for their restoration and fullness. Like I believe the evidence of God's scripture is he desires both the full salvation in time of his people, but also the present encouragement and comfort for us today. And we should pray towards those ends. And we should pray and recognize that God unites us across time, space, mileage, and we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged because God is at work. Even if he feels like he's not in work at your neighborhood, he's at work around the globe. So after Paul has seen <clears throat> what, is in, what is encouraging about the Colossian church, and he is encouraging and reminding them that he is encouraged by it, he then turns in verse 6 to say this, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. Moo, in his commentary on Colossians, continues to say that in these two verses, Paul has succinctly summarized the basic response that he wants from the readers. He is telling us exactly what he wants to see. He continues to speak specifically about verse 6 here when he says this, if this passage that we're reading is the heart of Colossians, this verse is the heart of this passage. It serves as the hinge between the first major section of the letter and the second, the first clause succinctly restates the key theological arguments of the letter to this point. Jesus Christ is Lord, and we have entered into his lordship. The second clause then summarizes the specific commands and warnings that follow. We are to continue to live in him, to work out just what it means in both our thinking and our acting to live under the lordship of Christ. So in this powerful one single verse, which Paul, for you guys who are writers can appreciate this, I am not good with an economy of words. I take something that could probably said in a couple sentences, maybe one sentence, and I take a paragraph or more. Easy, I know I do. It's my brain, I'm all over the place. I haven't gotten diagnosed for adult ADHD, but who knows, maybe medication would help. But regardless, Paul is in a verse saying, you have received Christ as Lord just as you did that. Continue to walk in him. It actually echoes in this passage, Colossians 1, 10 through 12. Let's read the rest of verse 7 as he encourages them to walk. What does it look like to walk in him? Being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. And remember, when we look back at chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he said something very similar. 
He prayed for them so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully. Interesting, he starts and he ends with gratitude towards God for what he's done. The phrase rooted there, it changes. You guys didn't know you were going to get a grammar lesson this morning. It changes in the tense of the verb because rooted actually describes a present reality. So if you're in Christ, your foundation has been set. You are justified. You have no reason to worry. If your faith has been placed in him, if you see the sufficiency of Christ on your behalf before God and you believe and trust that God is in him working out your salvation, then he says you are established. Like you are, you are firmly founded in that. You are justified before God. But the built up and later is more of an ongoing growth. Like I want to see you now. You are rooted in Christ. And I want to see you continue to be built up in him and strongly established in the faith, strongly established, more established. And just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude, you see then that Paul recognizes that the salvation offered in Christ is not one for some future glory that we wait here in this earth and suffer to come to. But instead, he wants to continue to build you up and grow you to be more and more like him. It's the same phrase that we see earlier when we read in chapter one what God's purpose is. In chapter one, verses 20, uh, verses 22, verse 22, uh, yeah, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Why? To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. He wants to continue to work towards holiness in you. And you know, when I think about this and what it looks like to walk as Paul's encouraging the Colossian church, he is telling them that you were founded in Christ, but you are continuing to walk in him. I cannot but come to the conclusion from the text of Scripture that the life to follow in Christ is not intended to be complex. There's a simplicity about it. Like a simple faith day after day. And I feel like that's confirmed by the way that Jesus talks about people that he desires to come to him. Because in Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 30, Jesus says this to his disciples. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I will acknowledge myself as one so great and guilty of this that I feel that we are tempted in this life to have some angst about following after God that is unwarranted. Like, like there is something extra that we need to add to our performance before the Lord. Like there's a very real temptation in the church that we measure our approval and our acceptance before God based on our performance in life. And it doesn't seem to be apparent that that's the complexity God's intended for his people. What I don't want to suggest for us today is that I want to encourage you to just do easy things. Life is not going to be easy for one who tries to strive after the Father, to follow after the footsteps of Christ. Lest I remind you that when Christ fully embodied God in this world, they killed him. But at the same time, the steps that we take to be a faithful follower of him are not complex. But God intends to be very simple. Uh, I don't have a quotation for who this very much come from. I heard someone talking about their father who was a pastor and paraphrasing what he saw as the Christian life, he said, I wake up every morning and seek Christ, and then I spend my day minding him. Just to, just to seek after to hear what Christ has for you and obey it. Just listen. Like, like I don't want to make this any more complex. I don't want to be how Jesus describes the scribes when he says you heap heavy burdens up on people that you can't even bear. 
And Paul's encouragement them is just as you found your faith in Christ, just as you were established in faith, just walk in him. Like, like there's nothing extra you need to pile on top. Like he is, God is satisfied in you because he is fully satisfied in his son. And many of the complexities and the, and the difficulties that we bring to the table sometimes are self-inflicted. And we want to gain the approval of the Father, that we want to do things, or maybe we wake up and you, maybe you're like me, you wake up and you feel like a really bad day and you have a difficulty in your own heart to believe that God truly still loves you where you are. But I can affirm for you today, if your faith is in Christ, that the full love of the Father is on you. If you are, you are standing fully in his presence and he is satisfied in you. And you can walk boldly before the throne in your brokenness and say, I am not enough, God, but you are, and Christ is. And he welcomes you home. And what Paul acknowledges when he writes this letter is while it is still simple, and I told you this at the beginning, and I want to encourage you to not try to find a way of complexity to add spirituality onto what Christ has already done. He is also acknowledging that there are challenges and opposition to that walk. So, so, so it's just, let's compare, right? It's simple to, it's a simple idea, but it's a challenge to do. The, 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 those, those aren't intention. It's a challenge to do because what makes it difficult is the enemies and the opposition we face. Like, like in this world that we walk, friends, there are active, and Paul points to, and we're gonna look at, there is at least, there's active three categories of powers that I want to look at today that Paul is acknowledging are working against you. He shows it here in Colossians, and we're gonna see it also shows up in Ephesians and a lot tighter. But here, before we start, I want to encourage you in this way. Even though those powers are at work, the testimony that Paul brings is that they are completely defanged by Christ. Like they are disarmed is the actual word he uses. Like it's like fighting a battle where you have the ultimate weapon on your side and they are just trying to throw rocks, if that. Because they have no weapons nothing in which they can crush you with because Christ has crushed them. So look at the three. First is the world, then the flesh, and then the devil. Apparently this is a really well-known phrase because when I looked it up on Google, my friend uh, Google, um, I found that there was a 1959 movie by Harry Belafonte, or, uh, starring Harry Belafonte titled by the same thing. has nothing to do with this passage. But, and I can't even recommend it. I just wanted to tell you. Um, but in verses 8 through 10, we see something at least evident that Paul is making reference to the world. Look at verse 8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and every authority. Well, first starting in verse 8, that he says, don't be taken captive through philosophy and empty deceit. It's, um, there's some clear wordplay in the Greek, by the way. I don't like doing a bunch of grammatical references. I don't know why I'm doing it today. But, but basically, that, that he's also at least suggesting that this has something to do with Judaizers, with something with Jewish traditions, because the philosophy is a reference common at that time when, when Jews were speaking to themselves. But also, there's a play on the word of synagogue in here, just so you know. But it's clearly more than that. Because he's also saying completely based on the elements of the world. And elements even goes beyond just what we think as parts and pieces of the world. But it echoes earlier conversations about rulers and authorities and spirits and principalities. Like there's, an, there's, a, there's a spirit at work in this world and you need to make sure you are not being drawn aside and what he says taken captive by these philosophies. And so when we think about this, we've got to say, define words. I want to define what is the world when I'm specifically talking about this. And I find it helpful for me to look at Ephesians 2 to get a more full picture of what Paul seems to suggest is the world. 
So in verses one through three in the letter to Ephesians, Paul says, and you were, we read it earlier, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. And what are the ways of this world? According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature under wrath as the others were also. So what I want you to, to see here is in, in, in a very specific way that when I say the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're not like some independent pieces that are working simultaneously. They work in conjunction to oppose your faith and your foundation. That here specifically, what really the world is, if we look at this, the ways or the wisdom of the world, and I'm gonna define it this way because I found it helpful. It's the collective humanity who is hostile toward God and following after their flesh and the devil. So think about it this way. If you yourself are tempted by your flesh, and you are also led astray by the devil, the spirits at work in the world he talks about here, the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient, then we are also surrounded by an entire world facing the exact same thing. Like, like it's, it's a human condition. And if we listen to the wisdom of the world and we hear, broadly speaking, a word or a wisdom that is hostile to God, know that it's just a collective world that's following after the flesh and the devil. Like they're believing a lie and they're making it sound reasonable. Does that sound like what Paul's talking about here? And what I think is really interesting is that Paul directly says, hey, the ways of the world might sound wise to you. That's what philosophy is, love of wisdom. But you don't need to be taken captive by that. Why? Because the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ and you have been filled by him who is the head over every rule and authority. He's saying that Christ is the authority over all that wisdom. And we saw earlier in Colossians, fullness of wisdom is in Christ. Like God in all his nature is fully in Christ. The fullness of who he is is present in him. And friends, friends, if you're in Christ, the fullness of that wisdom dwells in you. And we said earlier where Paul was bringing to our attention that the church is united in spirit and he's setting that up for this exact part this exact encouragement for the church because what we lose in the english is that when it says that the that you have been filled by him what we tend to do is personalize that like it's just me, like Christ is in me. It's just me and Jesus. I'm gonna walk this world and I'm gonna figure it out. But the heart is deceitfully wicked. And we have to be careful about thinking wisdom of the fullness of God's and Christ's wisdom is in us and we're not gonna just deceive ourselves. What the phrase here, you, is actually plural. Paul is saying, hey church, the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God's wisdom is in you. You, the body. And this plays entirely to the end of this letter and everywhere that Paul talks about this because he said the body of Christ has many members. That we're to encourage one another, we're to build each other up, that he's given us gifts of apostles and preachers and teachers. Why? For the building up the body to the fullness and maturity of Christ. That we together as we are the body living in community, we talk about community groups, we talk about gospel communities that meet in homes, it's because we are living these one-on-one, -on -one, these encouragements together to build us up to the fullness and the maturity of Christ. Because why? Because alone we are an isolated sheep out on a hill. But together we are the body of Christ under the leadership of the Good Shepherd. And I love the contrast that's being made here because Paul is pointing directly and specifically to the collective world that is being led by the flesh and by the devil. And he says the counter to that is the collective body of Christ being led by the spirit under the authority of the king. 
that the fullness of God's wisdom dwells in the body of Christ. So we don't have to subject ourselves to the wisdom of this world. We can test those things we hear. We can bring them to our brothers and sisters. We can set around scripture and hear from God together and we can encourage one another. I got blind. Listen, this is why we have said over and over again, I am one of the pastors here and I am also one of the members of this church because I am not in some unique authority over you in such a way that I know it all. I am open to hearing God's challenge and edification and encouragement from you because that grows me as an individual and as a person within the body of Christ. In the same way, we encourage one another to follow after the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of this world. Secondly, Paul addresses the flesh that's in us. He turns in verse 11 to say this, you were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ where you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now this is an interesting turn because he seems to have now started to address a medical procedure that some of us and many of us probably are familiar with what, he's ta- what it is, circumcision. But what I want to key in on, and we'll talk more about why this parallel is happening here, is that he's specifically connecting it to putting off the body of flesh. Like, what we have to recognize throughout Scripture is that flesh, in one very specific way, is connected to our sin nature. For us who are born in this world under the fall, We have a flesh that wants to seek after pleasure and peace and all those things that would satisfy us in our bodies. And Christ has recognized and all throughout Scripture recognized that we have to combat that on a daily basis. But what is beautiful in here is that it's not the strength of our own will that puts off the body of flesh, but here he says it's in the circumcision of Christ. Like like in Christ, again, he's the power that is weak in the flesh. It's the nature that's within us that is opposed to the Spirit of God. And we see that opposition, we see that opposition fleshed out in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul begins to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. But just before that, in verse 16, he references the flesh. In verse 16, he says, I say then, Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the opposition that he's setting up. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 19. The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar, like a junk drawer on the end, right? If you're a parent, like you get this, and if you're not, you'll figure it out as your kids grow up. Like you have to, I have some pedantics in my house. Okay, so like if I say something sometimes and I don't quite get it right, like they might find that loophole. Paul's like trying to close it and anything similar. And what we have to acknowledge and Paul is pointing to is that there is a fleshful, there's a fleshly sin nature in you that is drawn toward and desires to indulge in things in this world that are in opposition to the Spirit of God. And what I want to also acknowledge for each one of us is that is different. Like that's unique to you. I use an extreme example often because one of the things for me that I could say is that I will never be tempted Never, don't use a strong word like that. I am not in a place that my flesh will tempt me to walk outside and find somebody who's dealing black tar heroin. It's just not my thing. It's not my bent, but I got my other problems. And so I point that out because each one of us is gonna face temptation from our flesh that is unique to us. The experiences of our life, the things we've already given into, they will find, you will find them stronger temptations than others will. But that doesn't make any of them less damaging. And why does Paul talk about circumcision? Well, I love this. 
not circumcision. But I love how he does this connection because in this passage, you'll see where some of our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian church get the idea that there's a connection between circumcision in the Old Testament in the covenant and baptism in the covenant. This is why, if you're not familiar, why they baptize babies. You're coming into the covenant. You know, babies were circumcised. Well, we'll do the baptism here. So we can understand why they're making a connection here. Not that we agree. But what he does seem to be in suggesting is just in the same way that circumcision physically removes flesh, that in Christ he has surgically removed and cut off the power of the flesh in your life. Like that's a clear, direct connection. And it's not a new idea in the New Testament because in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses, the guy in the law, made the exact same connection. In verse 12, he told the Israelites, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, or with all your heart and all your soul. Keep the Lord's commands and statutes I am giving you today for your own good. And skipping down to the end of this passage, he says this, uh, therefore circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Now Moses is really clear. He knows that circumcision as a procedure is not on your heart. But he also knows that there's a nature within you that God has to cut off. And the beauty of this passage is Paul says he does it in Christ. He, he says put off the flesh. Later in, in, in Romans when Paul talks about the wrestling of the body he says who will save me from this body of death. In this letter to the Colossians he talks about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And when your faith is in Christ, he has circumcised your heart. He has cut off the power of that flesh. It no longer has power over you and you no longer are a slave to sin. Like, like you don't have to indulge and follow the leading of the flesh because the spirit of God rests in us. Like when we talk about that we are united in spirit, it's that same spirit that empowers you day by day, when you're faced with temptation by your flesh and in Christ, you have strength to overcome. And finally, not working alone, Paul also recognizes the work of the devil. Verses 13 to 15. Again, I say these aren't completely easily cut and dry, but he clearly makes address here. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the ruler and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. This is where I'm getting the title of victory in Jesus. And I was going to start to say I didn't ask. I was curious if somehow it would show up, but I wasn't going to be like, hey, let's sing that hymn. But it is true in here, victory is found in Jesus Oh, we're seeing it. I was like, that's not me, is it? Because I definitely, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if I messed up. Um, it's all good. You're, I would normally not bring attention to it, but now I'm calling you out, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel so, so distracted. All right. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, when Paul starts in chapter uh, in verse 13, and he's talking about your condition and your sin. He's, he's making reference to the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision in your flesh. That's before Christ has cut you off, that you were dead in your trespasses. It just sounds very similar to the way he talks in Ephesians. That in your sin, you are essentially in bondage to your flesh and you carry a guilt before God that you cannot satisfy on your own. That in our sin, we find ourselves in bondage we're carrying that guilt, and this guilt is kind of, this guilt is really akin to a debt that we owe, but we're unable to repay. And in the Bible, often we see the language of debt to describe guilt and the concept of forgiveness as the cancellation of this debt. And this analogy helps us to understand really the gravity of sin and the beauty of liberation that comes with forgiveness. See, 
Jesus uses an illustration in a parable when he's uh, with his disciples where he talks about the unforgiving servant. He speaks of a servant who comes before a king and has an enormous debt that we can't measure, just owes him his life, and the king, in his grace, forgives the debt. And then the unforgiving servant goes out and finds something that owes him five bucks for, you know, he borrowed to watch a movie and said, nah, I'm putting you in prison. When you consider this parable, the unforgiving servant, we see the nature of forgiveness. Because in this story, forgiveness of a debt by a creditor, the king, does not mean the debt just disappears in the thin air. Instead, the creditor has to absorb the cost and bear the loss. Like, like if you've ever had like a debt forgiven, or maybe you had something in your credit that you couldn't pay and it went and they wrote it off, you, you'll see the impact of this because the IRS sends you a bill for the tax because you got income. Like, like the, the debt was absorbed and they counted it as a loss. And when we forgive others, you and I, friends, we essentially choose to bear the cost of their wrongs against us. Like, we decide not to hold their debts, emotional, relational, or otherwise, against them. And it's the least we can do as those who have been forgiven such great a debt by God. And in this comparison that Paul is drawing out, He's demonstrating for us that Christ bore our guilt and erased our certificate of debt by nailing it to the cross. And this act signifies the ultimate forgiveness, where Jesus, as both the creditor and the sacrificial lamb, absorbs the immense cost of our sin, clearing our debt and liberating us from the bondage of sin. And he connects that directly to the fact that in doing so, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and he has disgraced them publicly. Elsewhere we see it, that he has put them to shame. See, the thing about the work of the devil, and when I say the devil, I want you to understand that we see throughout Scripture that Satan is an accuser, he's a liar, and he's a murderer. He wants to take life, he wants to deceive you, and he accuses you before the Father. And in this passage, Paul is saying that there is no accusation from the enemy that, sh- that can stand. Like, like, just like earlier when we said that you wake up in a way and feel like you need to measure up to God's standard for him to accept you and love you, the accuser is going to lean into that and say, yeah, you're right, you're not good enough. The accuser is going to lean into you. And if we see anything from Scripture, by the way, if you, if you hear a Bible verse to justify your sin, it doesn't mean it's not also him. Because they did it to Jesus. The accuser steps in and he leans into and points you toward the temptations of your flesh. And he accuses you before the Lord. But if we see anything in this passage, I want you to see this, that the power of the rulers and authorities and the enemies of Christ in this world is nothing in the life of a believer. That we have the choice to not accept those lies and believe that there's any shame that we bear because all the shame has been placed on Christ. That he has in his body here, we see taken away our guilt and nailed it to the cross. Victory is available for all those who are in him. Uh, An example I'd like to give my own life because I recognize it, and by God's grace in the moment, I was able to even see this. Uh, There was a time uh, in my past where there was some particular thing I wanted to do, and I was getting some opposition from somebody, and they were disagreeing with me, and I'm like, body of Christ, ah, stop. Um, You know, I know what's right. Uh, So... I, I didn't like the way things were going down, and I remember in my head thinking, you know what, just like in Philippians, they really need to humble themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, it says that uh, think more highly of others, and they're not doing that, okay? They should be thinking more highly of me. I, I heard, I literally, in my head, I'm thinking about this. And, I, and here's how this plays out. And, and, and friends, you might recognize this. I begin to agree with that. 
Like I was getting mad, like anger stirring. And by God's grace, with the spirit at work in me, that might seem like a little thing, but I also, the spirit brought to mind the absolute devastating effects of divisiveness within the church. Like, like more than anything of me getting my way, he says to have nothing to do with divisive people and seek unity and love. That's what happens later in this text. In Colossians, he's saying the same thing. And I was able to take a step back and be like, no, that's not, that's not God's spirit in me. I, I hear that. God, take this away. Like, this is not how my heart needs to be. Like, it's really, when I talk about it, it's simple, yet difficult. Like, we have to be, what does Scripture say? Be sober-minded and vigilant because our enemy, like a roaring lion, is seeking who he may devour. And in that moment, if I chose to agree with him and walk that path, I would have devoured my relationship in the church. I would have found myself on the other end of an argument that I shouldn't have been in. And brothers and sisters, according to what Paul's encouraging the Colossians, and he's preparing to point to specific challenges that they face in their church, he is trying to show them that God has in Christ completely disarmed any opposition to their faithful walking after him. It holds no power. And as we hold tight to Christ and our faith in him, and we seek the wisdom that's available in the body of Christ, and we deny our flesh because God has empowered us through his spirit to do so, and we identify and recognize the accusations and the lies of the enemy that he has promised to fully walk alongside us and to make us look more like Jesus. Let's pray towards those ends. Father, in your kindness, we're thankful for the way you've demonstrated such grace to us. Father, today, I pray that in no small measure that your spirit has worked mightily in our hearts. That the power of the Colossians letter is just as true today as it was then when Paul wrote these words. When he penned these words, Lord, the truth of your gospel, the power of Christ, and the victory that we have in him is just as true today as it was then. Father, remind us every morning the simplicity of walking in obedience after you. And God, encourage our hearts and embolden us to walk in the power that you give us over the enemies that oppose your people. And Father, I pray in all of this that you would make us more like Christ. In Christ's name, amen.